This episode of Energy Sense is brought to you by IHS Markets Financial and Capital Markets Energy Advisory Group. Our team of experts provides the investment community with actionable insight and integrated thought leadership that identify the trends and trend makers of global energy markets. Solutions cover the full energy and natural resources sector, from traditional fossil fuels to emerging clean tech ideas and supply chains, and are available via recurring reports, webinars, robust data sets, and personal engagements with experts. Welcome back to Energy Sense and our conversation with Dr. Stephen Nell around energy scenarios. This is side B. Knowing that side A was actually discussed last week, uh, please feel free to listen to that recording if you haven't done so yet. Hill, as promised, I think this side of the conversation is just as interesting, if not more. So please uh, take a listen. Yeah, I think so. And we've got we're going to go into a little more detail on, on the three energy scenarios that, that Stephen and his team are working from one called rivalry, which is our base case, another one called autonomy, which is more of a, um, I suppose, more, more of a greener transition, faster case. And, and then a third called discord focused uh, some on economic nationalism. Um, Stephen will get into more of the details in, in the in the second part of our uh, double feature album here. And we look forward to uh, hearing more. I was looking at the scenarios that we've published around, you know, rivalry, autonomy, and discord. Um, you know, and autonomy, as you mentioned, seems to be kind of the, the, the greener, you know, oil falls off a cliff. Rivalry, a, a little bit more of a modest decline of oil, you know, as natural gas and renewables climb. And then you've got discord, uh, which sounds miserable. It is. Are y'all staying in the, the more... Do, do clients and the team, is there a bias toward some of the skeptical or the optimistic or, or is, is there kind of equal distribution across all of these cases in terms of well, the clients? Like we, we've tried to and we always do try to put our bias to one side, but I certainly find that my own and in a European context, I think this can be excused because of, you know, the regulatory structures, the prevailing social and indeed even economic arguments that persist, which is the energy transition should result in a kind of Green Deal outcome that we are in a position to afford the transition, that we know some of the things that can work. And frankly, you know, autonomy, this green case is generally used as a base case for European um, clients. I was running the numbers earlier because there's a big discussion here in Europe about accelerating our climate ambition through 2030. We set a net zero target for the entire European continent by 2050 with this new green deal that was uh, that was published in December, but then settled by part of the financial allocation that was agreed by EU uh, members in July. And you know, that's a huge ambition, even a big step up from the quite aggressive targets that the EU had for itself in 2030. So now there's a discussion about how we, we lift our ambition for 2030. In our autonomy scenario, we are exactly where the EU is now discussing it needs to be for net zero to be a possibility. So I'm not going to say that, you know, if, the, if they agree this new target, which would be a 55% reduction in EU 27 wide emissions relative to 1990, in our autonomy scenario in 2030, they're bang on target. You can't say that that is necessarily going to lead to a net zero position and the very aggressive ends, but it exists as a possibility. 
And that's one of the ways in which scenarios cut the cake and use different scenarios in different time periods. If you want to understand whether the EU can actually do what it's suggesting it needs to do, well, autonomy shows you the way. Now, conversely, the likelihood of an autonomy scenario in North America, in the United States in particular, will be somewhat contingent on election results mm -hmm. and what the theme of kind of sustainability activity at a federal level is in the United States over the next four years. You can't like I see that North American uh, clients and colleagues use rivalry, a base case, where climate action is in the background, but not necessarily the imperative. They use rivalry, and it's a rigorous set of energy market fundamentals where – you know, the peak in oil comes later, you know, another 15 or so years. You know, there's there's a more optimistic story around the expansion of markets. And you assume that regulations essentially support that kind of trajectory. And one of the things that's great about the scenarios is that you can use them in the, that very way. Use autonomy to understand the European marketplace, because frankly, we don't really do probabilistic Mm -hmm. um, kind of uh, assessments when it comes to the scenarios. We use things like signposts every quarter to say what's in play. And looking over the last quarter at what's in play, well, if you cut up the G20, the European markets are all in kind of an autonomy trajectory. They're seizing the opportunity to have a green recovery. The indicators are all pointing towards that lower emissions outcome in a European context. So those fundamentals really apply. If you're doing business in Europe, you need to understand a world where there's very aggressive climate action because it's like it's here. It's just a Is question of how aggressive will it be? And how much of that, so, so the rivalry case, one of the points that I thought was really interesting in there is that with governments facing political and financial constraints, there's a shift toward more corporate leadership on emission reductions. Yes. Is that true across all three cases? Or when we get into autonomy, is the burden more on the, the policy and the regulators rather than the corporate leadership? Oh, that's a great question. So in autonomy, I would say that there's more clarity with regards to the regulations that more aggressive climate action, more, you know, swifter emissions reductions, um, and ultimately autonomy on our estimation using the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change's fifth assessment report of 2015. And that's one of, we have to kind of take away a bit of the science of climate change to do this analysis. Autonomy is a two degree case on that basis. Right. So, you know, those fundamentals are very much in play there. The rivalry scenario, conversely, looks more like a, you know, like a, a three degree world, for example. And um, in that context, meaning like so, so by 20, yeah, by 2050, your emissions pathway is consistent with a three degree outcome by the end of the century. And in climate change politics, we talk a huge amount about temperature levels. And frankly, I've got the wrong PhD for that as a social scientist. I'm not, I'm not necessarily very well trained to be doing climate modeling from a certain standpoint. But it's a vocabulary that we have to adopt in order to, you know, to really understand part of our clients' needs, which is, you know, boiled down to what really matters most if you, if you need to grasp the core of an idea. And I think that in some cases, scenarios are like that. You know, there's one or two hooks that each of the scenarios hangs upon. And if you believe in the integrity of those hooks, then the numbers associated with those scenarios are plausible, are, you know, defensible for your purposes. Now, the reality, um, so that's just an aside, as it were, Hill, but the reality is that corporate action on climate change is one of the things that makes the current energy transition unique. 
because I've looked at this like since the ni- early 90s and there has never been the extent of private corporate engagement or investor sentiment focused on sustainable outcomes as that which we see today. There's a couple, you know, there's a couple lightning rods for the the activism we see. Obviously the Paris Agreement of 2015, well, you know, there's a Article 4 of the Paris Agreement calls for all capital allocations to be consistent with the objectives of the accord. You know, that that basically means we have to green all of our financial flows in order, you know, or that's that's a that's a goal um, that has animated a certain type of, you know, buy side, sell side player that's focused a lot, not just, you know, and again, you know, you might say it's coming at the cost of traditional engagement with energy. I'm I'm not so sure about that, but um, there's, there's no doubt that there's support for investor strategies uh, in a kind of a broad regulatory sense. In a way, the Paris Agreement started a process, which particularly in our rivalry base case, we see corporates really grabbing in, a, in the context of, say, the United States, where the regulatory focus has been kind of elsewhere to a certain extent, or less intense on certain types of mandates for climate as in the foregoing administration, well, shareholder activism and fund manager kind of allocations have driven corporates to do more on climate than they've ever done before. And, you know, even seeing it against the backdrop of the pandemic recession, over the last nine months, we have seen a wave of net zero and very aggressive, you know, targets for different types of boundaries that different corporates are responsible for, you know, net zero scope one, you know, managing scope three emissions associated with the um, the combustion of your product in the context of oil and gas sector players. There has never been a greater corporate commitment to act on the environment than that which we see today. And that's a starting point for scenarios. So in rivalry, it actually, we feel that in many cases, it will supersede that corporates are pushed by their investors to do things which politicians are unwilling to regulate is another way you could formulate it. And that, you know, the investors have adopted a sustainability imperative, which is writ large across their existing portfolios in some cases, but also critically, like how they're filtering different investment opportunities. And those investors are using our scenarios to say, okay, so what's the market for your particular product? What's your prospective emissions footprint? What else is going to be happening in that country that might mean the expectation you have about delivering a certain, let's say, transport liquid product for me, you know, actually, I have a scenario here where the market shrinks by 60%. Okay, so, so are you as resilient as you think you are, you know, you can do cash flow analysis with the different projections. But ultimately, the filtering and the way in which scenarios can allow investors to understand the opportunities that are there, which they're always looking towards, but also where the risks are, you know, how much are they kind of in? What are their invested emissions? today if they're holding a certain portfolio made up of this group of companies with you know some of the underlying emissions figures that we give them well that's particularly problematic and that can lead to some portfolio turnover where invariably lower emitting sources tend to be privileged now i think that from a certain standpoint it overshadows value and i think there's a really interesting value story that's getting a bit overshadowed in the energy transition by ESG and kind of social license to operate issues. But, you know, it's quite clear that in rivalry in particular, we're expecting corporates to be driven to do more than ever before. And it's not because the politicians have said so. The politicians have kind of done their work by agreeing the Paris Agreement and setting out a framework for investors to really push harder. 
in autonomy, it's, conversely, we would say the, the regulators are right there pushing and that kind of combined partnership between public and private allows for still more emissions reductions over time. So there's an article in the paper this weekend, you know, and, and we've seen lots of these where uh, one of the major universities endowments was saying, let's get out of fossil fuels. You know, it's easy to get out of fossil fuels when the companies making fossil fuels aren't making any money. Right. The, the, these, the sentiment seems to have changed as oil went from $100 to $40. Um, do, do you see this sustainable, that this interest in lower carbon ventures or, or you know, non-fossil fuel, if these fossil fuel companies should start returning money to investors and start making more money, are we going to see asset management swing back to, to, to fossil fuels? Or is this a, a real commitment where even if the oil companies start making money again, we're not going back? Well, I, I think time will tell. It's a great question, you know, because, you know, all the scenarios point towards electricity as the key growth story, you know, varying degrees of variability when it comes to where the power comes from. But it's like power to the people. That's what most scenarios point to. And it's it's problematic for many traditional oil and gas sector businesses. Sitting on top of that is the fact that, you know, we have this ESG rating and ranking nomenclature that different organizations have put forward that really reward diversification strategies, you know, again, generally built on renewables, electricity, you know, maybe to a certain extent, um, hydrogen creeps in there, that particularly with European IOCs. But, you know, those things notwithstanding, one of the things that's quite interesting, we've had a lot of discussions is how the European IOCs have handled their dividends through the crisis, and how that stands in contrast with the way some American majors have, which is, you know, the Americans quite resolute, here's your returns, the Europeans saying, uh, we're going to cut, for a couple good reasons, but in one of the reasons is that we're we're making changes that will allow us to be better tomorrow, that we'll come back from this better, and our inter I will the dividend will be contingent on how our integrated strategy plays out. So that's an even bigger Atlantic divide when it comes to how you know oil and gas and the biggest oil and gas producers are thinking about things. It's going to be competitive. Like there's no doubt that um, oil and gas has been pretty high return, you know, but also pretty high relativity or volatility, rather, relatively speaking. So, you know, you know, we're we're kind of a peaky business, and some people have ridden those waves have been very well remunerated over the years. There's a pathway that still exists where you know that because of a lack of investment or some of the volatility that might creep into this transition, that those you know, traditional hands, you know, traditional EMP businesses, perhaps in particular, are in a good position to be well rewarded. Actually, this is where our Discord scenario plays out quite nicely because it's one where, you know, economic nationalism brings globalization to virtually a, a screeching halt. And there's a wait and see narrative that emerges in investors and indeed in, in corporate uh, circles. And that makes, you know, the energy system considerably more volatile. There will be troughs, but so too will there be peaks. And, you know, you want to be you want to be a part of that. One of the things that I've observed is that in the response to climate change, it's been a really big focus on corporates diversifying their operations as opposed to their investors having diversified portfolios. This is where my foregoing argument about value has been overshadowed. There's some companies that are, you know, pure EMP players. They do it better than anybody else. They will have a seat at the table for the energy transition because they'll be able to deliver their product, perhaps in a more concentrated, efficient you know, maybe maybe they're just focusing on one aspect of their sustainability story, and they're going to be lower methane intensity than anybody else. 
that, you know, right now they don't, they're being kind of penalized a bit because they're not speaking to, you know, the audience that desires renewable electricity above everything else because some scenarios have reinforced that. Um, indeed, you know, it's quite interesting to see the European uh, integrateds basing their strategy in part on the results of the scenarios that they've developed in-house where certain types of supply diversifications are the ones that have the greatest upside, where the market enjoys the greatest, let's say, you know, emissions reduction relative to return. I think it's going to be fascinating also to see like if the recovery is moderate and economic contraction really slows, are some of the people like, um, you know, Larry Fink, uh, Fink of BlackRock who've been really outspoken about the way in which they will filter or reward certain types of sustainability strategies. You know, if we're in a bear market and things are getting really, really tough out there. Do, do they stick with those diversified models, even if it means sacrificing short-term returns in the form of the dividend rewards that U.S. super majors have given their shareholders this year compared to the Europeans that said, you know, stick with us because of, you know, the, the net zero model that we're going to be following? I think it's a fascinating question. And frankly, it's very difficult to resolve because you can see both paths. It seems like, uh, go ahead, Brian. Um, I was just going to say, so if we think of, obviously, everybody's going to talk pre and post pandemic forever into the future, yeah. right? That this is how things were before and after. But when you talk about your scenarios, it sounds like this, uh, the circumstance of 2020 has shifted fundamentally where those scenarios went or, or even what the starting points for those scenarios were. Can you envision or is there a scenario that really looks at it reversing course right back to where we were in 2019? Or do we actually think that everything is structurally shifted and we're off on this new course? Yeah, we're off on this new course. Like it'll never, it'll never be the same again. I can't foresee of a situation where we're able to rescue the types of economic activity that have been dislocated. Certainly the way in which we've been tracking the rescue and recovery packages across the G20. You know, as I said, most of it is focusing on autonomy and kind of a, a further intensification of where things were. So that's government seizing the opportunity to be greener in the future. Uh, in other markets, they're just trying to survive. Brian. So like whether or not they're actually going to be able to get back is that it's a return to prosperity that is the imperative and is guiding all the allocations. You know, money, relatively speaking, is pretty cheap for governments today. And they're borrowing in unprecedented. You know, we had a number here for the UK. We're basically in the whole two trillion now. And the last time is this was the case is when we we're paying off the Second World War. <laughs> you know, we've never seen in our generation anything of the sort before. And the dislocation is, you know, it has a it has a structural quality. I, I use the, the language of there's been a, a permanent loss of growth potential as a result of this. And like I can get a bit of a bounce back in GDP in a given scenario, but you know, there's so much that's that's not really materializing this is a this is an economic recession of the sort which we have never seen before because there is a playbook on how you get back but the thing that we're seeing is that the behavioral dimension is very very difficult to um to be able to speak about with certainty you know you can lead a horse to water but you can't make them drink you can open up restaurants you know do you want to go maybe you know we've had this big push in the uk here where it's a uh, you know dine out to help out and the chancellor of the exchequer has been paying 50% of the check when you go out Monday to Wednesday. It's been great. I had a really nice pizza and it costs next to nothing the other week. So I'm trying to do my bit to help out the local pizzeria. I got one later in the week at full price too, by the way. So, <laughs> you know, just so, just so we're clear, but 
you know, those kinds of measures are being instituted. And I've never, you know, after 2008, nine, we never talked about anything of the sort, like cash for clunkers, some of the things that saved automotive, that saved some industries after the last major global recession, we don't have the same playbook. The severity of the dislocation is absolutely unprecedented. The markets that have been hit, And the fact that it's kind of a generalized one as well, you know, so emerging markets kept the global economy afloat to a degree in 2008 and 2009, and we don't have that. You know, what we're seeing is actually the situation worsen in India. China, you know, braced prospectively for, you know, as weather turns with the shift in seasons, you know, autumn bringing a recurrence that could well... uh, prompt, you know, public health measures that lead to further dislocation. I don't think we've seen the end of it yet. One of the things that's great about our scenarios too, you know, that's worth mentioning is that, you know, we, at, at this company, we've got all the people that I need to talk to. So I've got the macro economists. I can talk to Naram and Baravish if I really want to know what the macro impact of, of this happens mm-hmm. to be this quarter. Our life sciences team um, under Gus Ando, like have been absolutely invaluable to help us in energy understand and essentially to capture the perspective variability in the response. And there's stories, you know, with uh, vaccines, without, you know, that are varying degrees in terms of how they will influence our expectation of demand. But, you know, the whole it's never going to be the same again. I know that we're prone to hyperbole in the energy sector and, uh, you know, this energy transition in a way, it's quite unique, but we've always been transitioning to lesser or greater degrees from one fuel to another, different business models, ownership structures, different, you know, different requirements to support an evolving global economy. But this time it's really different. And it sounds, you know, and I think this is a good place to end it, but but it sounds that, you know, that despite all of the discord and dysfunction and everything else, that, that, you, that you're an optimist and you're looking at the future, you know, to 2050. Uh, we've got some good cases, some great cases, some bad cases, but you sound overly o- o- overall optimistic about it. Absolutely, I, I very much am. Like I see, I see it in you know micro examples. I see the way my community here in Northeast London has responded to uh, the improved air quality and how nice it was to not have you know huge trucks driving through our neighborhood to petition the council to have different type of regulation for vehicle usage in our immediate surroundings. That's good for my son's school. You know, that's good for, you know, me getting a good night's sleep. So, you know, I'm definitely all for that one. I've seen over the course of the last 12 months, some of the technology solutions that are associated with, you know, providing clean, reliable, affordable energy to the people that are excluded from the energy system really improve. You know, ultimately, you know, we think about climate change as part of a broader pursuit of improvement when it comes to how the energy system supports the global economy. There's a lot of people that have been excluded and local air pollution is as significant, if not more so, uh, an issue than, uh, than climate change. So I see more solutions emerging there. I see really strong leadership. You know, we're talking about being lapsed Canadians, you know, Canada's provided a really great example in some of the policies that it's put forward. The European narrative has been really compelling. There's examples of good regulations and regulatory responses to the challenges of the day. And I, I can't help but be inspired by that. But, you know, ultimately, Hill, this is a, you know, a system, despite all the mom- technical momentum that my historical research that Dan wrote about, you know, that we see all around us, despite that momentum, it's a system that we can bend to our will. And what I see is a lot of evidence of us trying to do better by, you know, in the first instance, 
our kids, but also for, let's say, the others that are, you know, perhaps excluded from some of the great bounties of the energy system that some of us have been fortunate enough to uh, to enjoy. So from that standpoint, I'm, you know, I'm ever optimistic. I also get to work with the companies that they're going to have to be there at the front line, you know, and every corporate strategy, all the discussions that we have within our subscription base, the consulting work we do, there's a willingness to push harder than I've ever seen before. And it's push harder and it's, you know, it's trying to do more with less. It's trying to reduce the overall impact of the essential contribution that the energy system makes to the global economy. And with that, you know, I've got everybody that I need to, to kind of carry the day. And, um, you know, that's a, that's a great feeling. And it's, uh, you know, it's exciting to be in a position where you can contribute towards those really positive uh, corporate corporate narratives. Well, that's great. And th- this is, uh, I think this has been a great conversation. I'm excited to, to kind of pick up on it again in the, in the future. But, yeah, thanks. I hope uh, you'll have me back. I hope I haven't exhausted your listeners. I'm looking at the time now and realizing that we covered a lot of ground, but uh, it's been a lot of fun. And uh, yeah, I do hope you'll have us back. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and we did lose Rachel, uh, so, so, so she'll be back with us at another point. But Brian, Stephen, thank you all both. And uh, we'll, we'll try this again soon. Thanks Absolute so much, Stephen. pleasure. Yeah. Thank you very much. Bye for now. To read additional insights from our team of experts, visit our blog at www.ihsmarket.com slash energy blog. You can also find our experts on social media by searching for IHS Market Energy on either Twitter or LinkedIn. Have a topic idea or want to send us feedback? Email our podcast team at energysense at ihsmarket.com. This podcast contains information and insights copyrighted by IHS Market. To learn more about IHS Market Energy Solutions, visit ihsmarket.com slash energy. That's ihsmarkit.com forward slash energy.